Welcome to the PreparedX podcast, your complete source for crisis, emergency, business continuity and security preparedness interviews, news, and much more. Now, your host, he creates chaos for a living, Rob Burton. Good morning and welcome to episode 72 of the PreparedX podcast. I'm Rob Burton and just before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know about uh, the International Crisis Management Conference uh, that's coming up in October this year. We delayed it due to the coronavirus. So if you can join us on October 27th through 29th in Rhode Island, uh, we'd really appreciate it. We got uh, four great training courses on this year, as well as uh, a speaker day where we normally have between eight and nine speakers. So we're excited um, to get the conference going, hopefully uh, later in October. For more information, you can go to crisisconferences.com. Uh, today, I'm joined by Rob Fagan, uh, who is a crisis management consultant at the Foreign Service Institute and uh, has got um, an incredible career, uh, both military career, but uh, as well working um, a lot within the civilian sector and supporting the civilian sector as it relates to disasters. So we're excited uh, to have Rob today. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Rob. Thanks so much for having me today. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And I'd like you to just, uh, before we get started with the um, interview, um, if you could just expand on your career, please, because I know you, you've, uh, you've got a, an extensive career uh, within the disaster field. So um, we're excited to hear more about it. Uh, thank you so much, Rob. Well, I, um, I'm very blessed to have uh, had the opportunity to do some very, very unique things uh, in this world. And when I spent 30 years in the United States Army, but I had a very uh, unique specialty that very few people actually know about. I was a foreign area officer uh, for the United States Army. Essentially, we are tasked to be liaison officers to other armies around the world uh, to include doing uh, foreign policy and uh, foreign liaison type work at very large commands like in the Pentagon and things like that. And, and during that career, though, uh, one of the things that I uh, just by happenstance got involved in was humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations. And that really started my whole uh, love for all topics, emergency management and things that have to do with disaster response. And now I do that professionally after having retired from the military. Well, that's great. Um, and when we started to talk about some topics, uh, I think it was last week when we touched base, um, I really got excited um, to hear the, the phrase operationalizing resilience. So uh, we're excited to you know, talk about that today. So um, as it relates to the topic today, can you just give the audience a little bit of background on um, organizational, uh, organizationalizing resilience and what that means, that concept? Sure. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to dialogue with fellow crisis management professionals on this topic because I feel it's very, very undertreated and not uh, fully understood by not only those in our profession, but the folks that I would actually like to reach with it, which are, you know, the layman population. The concepts we're talking about today come from, you know, a few decades, quite frankly, of not doing this right before there were proper intervention techniques. And please allow me to caveat the rest of our conversation today by stating that I am not a highly trained mental health professional or board certified in any of the things that we're discussing. Sure. However, I have had several professional experiences to include combat that have made me reflect on what trauma does to the mind. And through my own treatment, I've learned a great deal about what I wish I and my work teams would have known prior to undertaking humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations. 
Unfortunately, resilience is a term in vogue that has been used so much for so many different things that not unlike the term strategy, it has almost lost its meaning. So operationalizing resilience is about making mental health promotion techniques available to layman leaders that have or are experiencing trauma and, and they're having to lead through it with others. Just like with physical first aid, there are plenty of things that a person can do to be the first link in the chain of survival for psychological first aid. There's plenty of research out there that demonstrates that quick action of simple techniques lessens the impact of the trauma and speeds recovery. There are things that everyone can do before professional help arrives because quite frankly, it might take a great deal of time. So good leaders need to act quickly for themselves and the folks who work for them. So, you know, this, this really is a topic that's close to my heart, Rob, because, you know, being, being former military myself, um, I've got a lot of friends who uh, stay behind and have full careers. I, I left after 13 years, but, um, you know, a lot of the guys went back um, out to Iraq a number of times in Afghanistan and deployed to other parts of the world where, you know, they were subject uh, to all these uh, different, you know, you know, really serious situations that they got exposed to and life-changing in many cases. Um, and, you know, I, I personally been through, you know, the mental health side uh, or experienced something on the personal side, you know, more recently. And, um, you know, um, you know I, I can, you know, you can have a, a real appreciation for um, the whole field and, uh, and the challenges that, um, you know, the workforce goes through. Um, I'm really interested, though, um, with starting out, because I know there's a term that's out there or there's a, there's a process out there um, that's uh, critical incident stress management. Um, and so I, I know you've done a piece on this uh, for the Crisis Response Journal. It was a great piece, by the way. Um, so I'm interested to hear a little bit more. I'm sure the audience are. Uh, what is critical incident stress management? So critical incident stress management, a lot of people just call it by its acronym, SISM is a technique developed by and for first responders and starts to drill down towards what we're referring here, referring to here. Law enforcement, fire, emergency medical, and search and rescue have known for a long time that their jobs are very difficult, just as you refer, were referring to earlier uh, with uh, the military as well. And they've had to put these things into place to reduce mental health problems because you know, we've all seen it in the movies, the, the distressed uh, police officer or, you know, the, the harried emergency room uh, doctor and things like that. Well, you know, all that is very, very real. And if I can tell a quick war story, you know, my initial brief foray into real trauma started in college when I was in training to be an emergency medical technician. We would go out on these ambulance runs and see the most horrific things and then just go back to the hospital. And there was no debriefing whatsoever. You just, you know, quote unquote, dealt with it. Mm -hmm. So critical incident stress management is an adaptive, short-term psychological helping process that focuses solely on an immediate identifiable problem. So you see something traumatic and then you deal with that problem as a first responder. It can include pre-incident preparedness. There's lots and lots of programs out there that help people start to deal with these things. Uh, to acute crisis management, all the way to post-crisis follow-up. You know, there's, you know, bless their hearts, there's tons of law enforcement and fire organizations right now that if you see or hear certain things, you know, you automatically have to have a, a follow-up in your organization, which is tremendous. That's great because yeah. it didn't used to exist, you know, 20 years ago. 
you know, it's per the system's purpose is to enable people to return to their daily routine more quickly and with less likelihood of experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. We all hear about PTSD and, you know, there's lots and lots of different forms of it and anyone can get it for any type of reason. You don't have to go to combat to actually get PTSD. As a matter of fact, a lot of people who experience simple auto accidents will suffer from PTSD because of that accident. Sure. It's important to note that in mental health, there's no one panacea for trauma. Evidence-based reviews have concluded that system is ineffective for primary trauma victims. So who are we treating here? We're treating the people who are treating, not the actual victims. And that's an important part about system. It's for people who are experiencing and treating and dealing with trauma. Uh, system was never intended to treat primary victims of trauma or those who find themselves in harm's way and must continue to lead through it, which is why I kept drilling down and trying to work through how to operationalize this. The steps in system are, are, very, are very simple. It's defusing, debriefing, and following up. It's not rocket science, but it does require some training and listening skills to be good at actually helping people. Uh, but the techniques are pretty simple to grasp. Yeah, there's um, something similar um, out of the UK. Um, it's called TRIM. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, trauma risk management. I think it's a similar mm. uh, process that was adapted. Um, again, I think it started off in the military, but then has you know, been, now being adapted to, uh, like you say, you know, um, first responders and beyond. You, know, the, you think about the sure. prison, prison service as well, um, you know, the prison uh, wardens and prison officers who are exposed to you know, various things. So, yeah, I yeah. think it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, topic. And I remember um, after the first Gulf War, um, the University of Sheffield, uh, and this again was before uh, you had any of these debriefings whatsoever, or you know nobody would you know talk about anything, um, and right. just you just get on with it like you mentioned, and and you know just crack on with it with the lads, and um, you know have a good time and have a few beers and or a few more beers, and that seems to how you how you dealt with it back then. Um, yeah. But I remember the University of Sheffield consistently sent out, and apparently they still do it. Um, um, I, a poll and they sent it in the mail um, and you know they wanted to get feedback on all of these things how are you feeling you know what stages have you been through in terms of you know uh, how you've dealt with it you know can you and they were looking for this feedback and I think very little you know people were reluctant to give you know with their feelings across um, and so uh, but I think now as it's been uh, more widely adopted um, within the military I think you know we're, you know we're getting used to it both on the on the civilian side as well so this is uh, this is really important and I think um my in fact i know um my good friend of mine um was was out in the field teaching this to frontline um leaders in the military and they were saying as as quickly as possible after an ied attack as quickly as possible after you know uh, any traumatic event uh, where you've had a contact with the enemy or some other kind of event where there's been a you know an accident um and uh, you you need to debrief like you mentioned as quickly as possible and, and as soon as they start to adopt that methodology you know and and sometimes obviously in battle you can't do it within the first hour right so you know sure. sometimes you have to wait until you get back to you know to some you know safe place but they're saying even if you're in a forward mountain base or you you know you're out and you've got that break for a period of time you know you've got to at least start the process if you can as soon as possible so um it was really interesting that um you mentioned that because that's uh you know that's now fortunately been going on for a while certainly in the in the uk military so that's uh, that's good to hear um so i just want to know rob a little bit Matt, where you draw your experience from with regards to uh being exposed personally to uh, you know stressful situations 
Well, interestingly, my my personal experience with combat was not the most stressful thing I've done in my life just because of what I was doing and where I was doing it. But when I volunteered and led teams in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations, responding to earthquakes, volcanoes, floods, tropical storms, and mudslides, I was not personally prepared for what I would see and do, and nor were the people I was working with. So I've tried to process it and vow to do better because uh, when we initially did these missions, um, you know, there was no uh, preparation for what we were going to see and do. And then, you know, you see some of the most horrific things uh, in large scale disasters, and then you just come home and it's, it's not this way now, but at the time, humanitarian assistance operations were treated as like an ancillary thing. Uh, you know, hey, get, you, know, you need to get back to your primary job. You need to get back to your work. You know, you were out, you know, screwing off doing this thing for a couple of weeks. Now get back to your real work. And so not unlike when I was an EMT, you know, we just went in, did our job and then left without any type of intervention. And this was wrong. And we hurt people. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to think about what can be done better and what do layman leaders need to be armed with better to protect themselves psychologically. Yeah. I, yeah, I, there's some, another term that you've, you've used and, and again, I reference this article and I'd be happy to share with it if that's okay with you um, within our show notes, or at least can I have some link back to uh, CRJ because uh, it's a great article again. And uh, you talk about psychological first aid or PFA. Uh, can you expand a little bit more on that and the history behind it? Sure. So PFA gets us a little closer than SISM to what we're trying to do, which is help the layman leader in time of crisis. You know, and PFA is a, is, is a, is a great thing. It's truly for everyone. There's a lot of free training out there online and, and manuals. Uh, this is a technique designed to reduce the occurrence of post-traumatic stress disorder. It was developed by the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, which is a section of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. So again, we go back to these you know, military roots of trying to help veterans who've seen horrific things. But it's been spread by the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Community emergency response teams or CERTs use it as well all around the United States. And the American Psychological Association, the APA, endorses it and promotes it. So this is you know, well-grounded in, uh, you know, professional aspects of, of mental health professionals of approving these techniques. Um, psychological first aid is an evidence-informed modular approach for assisting people in the immediate aftermath of disaster and terrorism to reduce initial distress and to foster short and long-term adaptive functioning. It was used by non-mental health experts, uh, such as responders and volunteers, it still is all over the country. A lot of people use it successfully every day. Other characteristics include non-intrusive pragmatic care and assessing needs. That is, you can, in an unidentified way, help lots of people without being intrusive about it um, in a mass casualty type of uh, incident. And PFA does not necessarily involve, you know, discussion of the traumatic event itself. So you don't have to be a board-certified uh, psychiatrist or psychologist to to help people with this. There's basically five components of it, and you can learn them pretty easily. And, and as a matter of fact, there's a PFA app you can put on your phone. So if you forget, you know, in the heat of the moment, you can actually get the little debriefing techniques right there on your phone and help people with it. We call it the five C's of when you're dealing with PFA. One, the first C is to create a sense of safety. 
you know, you're creating a sense of safety. That, that means you communicate to the brain's fight or flight system that the stressful situation is over, right? You get the person to calm down and then you create calm, right? This is important both before and while responding. Then you create self and collective efficacy, they call it. And then there's the create a connection with that person. And then you create hope that this is now over, that things are going to be better. So it's the five C's, create a sense of safety, create calm, create self and collective efficacy, create connection, create hope. And while it might sound a little complicated right now, anybody can read it and anybody can learn these techniques. And if you, you know, even give it a shot with a person who's experiencing trauma, you're really going to help them out and you're going to reduce the effects and quicken recovery. That's excellent. Uh, I'm, I mean, that should be, you know, adopted, you know, far and wide as it relates to certainly, you know, just first responders. I know we got talking last week and um, it's always, uh, you know, been a, you know, a real eye opener for me. Um, and that's, you know, your, your everyday first responder, um, you know, sometimes the fire department, you know, will deploy every time depending on the municipality, right? So they'll, they'll, they'll deploy with the ambulance. And sometimes the police will go as well. And depend again, depending on the response, but, you know, but these, uh, you know, the, the uh, EMS folks uh, are exposed to this uh, daily. I mean, there's, there's a car accident or some kind of event every day for the EMS. And obviously, you know, the fire department's exposed to that as well. So surely they, you know, they must be the top of some you know, list of, you know, high risk in terms of being exposed. Well, they are. And, and, and this is why we really owe them a great deal of debt in terms of promulgating this, because I think the vast majority of most cities, counties, state, organiza federal organizations in the United States are using some type of form of this uh, down to the tactical leaders, uh, you know, in emergency medical and fire and law enforcement. You know, these, this vocabulary and the, this type of training is bantered about quite a bit. So thank goodness you know, we're applying this in our first response community now. Yeah. Um, the, the, there's another acronym you mentioned as well. I, I know, uh, you know, being former military, we always liked our acronyms and that is rapid. And I know you mentioned this in the article, closing the gap uh, within the CRJ um, uh, article. So um, what's rapid and how does it connect to um, the other components of, uh, you know, supporting resilience? Yeah, so this comes from Dr. George Everly of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. So he, he's trying to get us closer to, you know, layman being able to help layman with the RAPID model. And it's designed to promote personal and community resilience, right? So the RAPID model consists of reflective listening, the assessment of needs, prioritization, intervention, and disposition. That's what RAPID stands for. And, uh, these are to be used, you know, when there's injury and trauma that are beyond those which are just physical in nature. So, you know, we're, de we're doing even more, uh, you know, with a little bit of reflection and training, the RAPID model is readily applicable in public health settings, you know, uh, mass casualty events, the workplace, military, faith-based organizations, mass disaster venues, and even more commonplace critical events, you know, but here's the rub. With all of these models, the use of the model assumes the ability to talk to others in a safe environment to begin assistance. And so many leaders don't have this luxury, which is why I thought about how can we operationalize resilience in these terms, you know, which further hones this model and has some, some tasks to complete prior to and during an event. It, it's, um... 
how, how, does, how do you think folks are dealing with COVID-19 at the moment? I, I, and so <clears throat> I, I look at this situation right now and <clears throat> we all deal with situations uh, in different ways as humans. Um, and, and I've just been thinking, how can leaders start to recognize that they may have a problem? And, you know, and again, just using the, you know, the more, you know, this, you know, situation that we're, we find ourselves in now, this global pandemic, um, you know, how can businesses and government agencies uh, with regards to this, you know, take a really serious uh, look at it as it relates to their operations. But, you know, that first step, though, is recognizing that there's a problem, right? Because some people won't talk about it. Well, that's absolutely true. But, but I think, you know, we can adapt operationalizing resilience techniques uh, to what's going on right now as well, because, you know, it consists of two prior event tasks and three response tasks. But we can, you know, we can start doing that now. Prior to an event, you know, first responders or anybody, you know, should identify their roles and put themselves through a demanding regimen of psychological and mental preparedness to develop the emotional, physical, and intellectual acumen to respond swiftly and appropriately during a crisis. You know, you can start that now. You know, we're all caught up in this. Yep. You know, what is it that I, I need to do? What are, my, what are my current roles that I need to do? And just reflect on that in terms of what it, what it is that I've got to get done. And while responding, you know, one has to regain and keep their emotions under control. Uh, I know it can be difficult, especially in a long event like, like this one, like a pandemic, but it's important that leaders, you know, control their emotions and, and realize and reflect when they're either being short of temper or uh, not thinking real well. I catch myself right now during the pandemic not always having the best memory. Uh, maybe that's a function of age, but I think it's also a function <laughs> of, of anxiety right uh, to, to a degree uh so you keep your emotions under control you engage in positive self-talk you know this isn't the first pandemic uh ever in the history of the world it's not even close to being the worst one we will get through this and you know we just have to remember that there is going to be an end to this and the world might be a little different our lives might be a little different but if we engage in positive self-talk even that small act uh, is is really, really helpful to helping yourself and your organization. And then practicing active problem solving right now during COVID-19 is very, very helpful because a lot of us, you know, I, I mean, I just mentioned, you know, our thinking is a little off right now. And, and that statement, two heads are better than one, comes to us for a reason. You know, if we can get a diversity of opinion uh, when we're making decisions and get some other inputs, our decision-making outputs are going to be better. So through the use of operational resilience techniques, you know, first responders and everybody else can get themselves and others through the initial stages of trauma. I originally, originally wrote this for uh, very pronounced, quick events, mm -hmm. but I think it works now as well. You know, and we go from days confused and overwhelmed to the initial step within the chain of care and that beginning of psychological first aid and critical incident stress management, and we start that pipeline for mental health recovery. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, this has been um, fascinating, uh, Rob. I really appreciate you joining us uh, from Virginia. Um, have you got any final comments for our listeners and how might they be able to uh, contact you? Sure. I, I think just to sum all this up, I, I would tell everyone, don't be afraid of mental health discussions. It's not just for professionals. Anyone can get involved and, and have positive outcomes. You do not have to be a highly trained professional to understand key important elements in helping people because what you do quickly and what you 
you do as the first link in the chain of survival as it pertains to mental health goes a long way towards lessening negative effects and speeding recovery. Um, happy to talk to anybody and dialogue further about this issue. I'm on LinkedIn under uh, Robert Fagan, that's F-A-G-A-N, which is the Irish spelling as yep. opposed to the English or Welsh spelling. Yep. And uh, there we go. Happy to talk to anybody. Wonderful. And again, appreciate the time today, Rob, and uh, we'll be in touch again soon. Thank you so much, Rob. Have a great day. You too. Well, that wraps up episode 72 of our podcast series. I encourage you to please rate us on iTunes or any of the other podcast outlets. There are several now um, if you're listening to us. If you're listening to us via our website, we'd love to uh, have some comments from you, some feedback on this um, podcast. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you again on the next uh, episode, which will be 73 uh, in a few weeks' time. Again, thanks and have a safe day. Mm-hmm.